King Lear takes its audience on a tumultuous emotional journey, from Lear's fury in the storm, to his tender reconciliation with Cordelia, to the horror of the play's final fatal moments. In this episode, we speak with Simon Palfrey, Professor of English at the University of Oxford, about the play's expansive scope, from its intimate look at human relationships to its metaphysical exploration of what life is at its essence and what it means to be reduced to nothing. King Lear is so capacious that it, that it's that it's it's got so much that it, the the only uh, problem is if the critical view pretends to have encompassed the play, have captured it, have explained it, subdued it. That's you're not going to do that. The play's capaciousness starts with its main character. Leah is a figure who can be seen in multiple ways, both as an individual and as a representation of universal human experience. Lear is defined by very limited particular characteristics. He's petulant, he's spoilt, he's bad-tempered, he's impatient, he's sort of shrill, he's infantile. He's, you know, what, what his daughter say, he never, he's never known himself. On the one sense, he's a very limited human being. He's, he's been placed in this position of enormous authority and then renounces that authority and then is left with his own kind of weakness, his own sort of self-cannibalizing fury or something. It's a t- typical Shakespeare thing to create this enormous figure who's in so many ways tiny. But Lear is also a character who absolutely does encompass the whole gamut of human experience. Lear, in some ways, has his origins in morality play figures who are always kind of everymen to embody the whole range of of human responses and become kind of compendia of all the possible virtues and vices of, of, of human beings. Morality plays were a type of medieval drama in which figures representing universal qualities acted out stories that symbolised internal spiritual journeys. In one play, a figure called Everyman, who represents all human beings, goes on a journey towards death. In Shakespeare's play, we follow Leah not just towards death, but symbolically through every stage of human life. He's massively old. He's kind of titanically old at the same time as he's a child. He's talked about as a baby. He's treated as a child by his daughters. He regresses in, in, into this state of a kind of childlike nakedness. He, after enduring madness, he comes back and Cordelia's there. Cordelia's like a midwife a kind of a magical angel figure. There's a music. He's being reborn, almost literally reborn. And he said, you did me wrong to take me out of the grave. And and so he he goes through in all sorts of ways. So many different life stages are experienced by Lear in the play that it really does have the the, the sense of a person who's reliving in this incredibly accelerated way all of the possibilities of life. Morality plays were didactic, written to teach clear ethical and spiritual lessons. Some critics have read King Lear in similar terms. Lear makes a grave mistake at the play's beginning 
and must ask the angelic Cordelia for forgiveness. Gloucester committed adultery and pays the price of his sin when the resulting child, the bastard Edmund, turns on his father. But though Leah may resemble a figure from a morality play, this story does not offer quite such clear lessons. Certain particular moralistic understandings of the play see the play as transgression and punishment of transgression. There's a strong vein of moralistic criticism which draws upon the morality play tradition, which I think is absolutely there in the play. I think the play is, is, a, is a very explicit and sustained engagement with morality plays in which you know you, that there are certain things which are sins, certain transgressions, and you will pay for them. It's, it's very straightforward. And Lear does have that there, but it's much, much, much more complicated and modified because it's a play which holds multiple moral, ethical, spiritual, theological positions in equipoise all the time. Some of the play's complexities arise from the way that Shakespeare revises his source material. The story of King Lear came from a 12th century history and was retold in numerous chronicles, as well as in a play from the 1590s called The True Chronicle History of King Lear. In every version of the story before Shakespeare's, Lear is overthrown by his two eldest daughters, but ultimately restored to the throne with the help of his loving youngest daughter, who succeeds him as ruler. This tragicomic story, starting in calamity but ending in happiness, follows a biblical pattern familiar to Shakespeare's Christian audience. Loss and redemption, symbolic death and rebirth. Shakespeare echoes that Christian story in moments throughout the play, when Gloucester thinks he has fallen off a cliff and is told, thy life's a miracle, and the moment before Leah and Cordelia's reconciliation, when Leah thinks he has died and that she is a saint in heaven. The, the play gives us an exquisite scene of reconciliation and redemption, which then isn't the end of the play. You could end the play at the moment where Leah and Cordelia, and it would be a beautiful play. The version of King Lear in the 1590s was itself a Christian tragicomedy. But Shakespeare purposely alters that original redemptive ending. Instead of having Lear and Cordelia end up victorious, he has Cordelia die. Any audience member who knew the original story would have been expecting a consoling conclusion that suggests a providential force guiding the world and protecting the good. Shakespeare deliberately takes that consolation away. Shakespeare changes the plot. In this play, notoriously, terribly, Cordelia predeceases her father. This is Shakespeare's innovation, and it's sort of scandalous, if you like, violation of the source. We, we experience something of the satisfactions of a tragic comedy in that, that the lost child returns to the parent, forgives the parent, um, and they have a scene of unsurpassable sort of tenderness and beauty where you get the feeling of, of promise, the promised land, of restoration, of, of, of redemption. And then, of course, it, it, it's destroyed. Shakespeare didn't just revise his sources. He also revised his own play. One text of King Lear was published in 1608. A substantially different text was published in the 1623 First Folio. 
Scholars believe this later text represents Shakespeare's own deliberate changes to the play. And these changes only amplify the bleakness that Shakespeare added to Leah's story. Shakespeare cuts explanatory moments where at the end of a scene, you might get a character will comment upon the scene that's just happened. For example, after Gloucester is blinded, you then get a couple of other servants basically saying, you know, I'm going to look after him and I'm going to wash his eyes and daub them and take care of him. Lee will be taken off to the hovel and then Edgar will remain on stage to say a, a, a sequence of rhyming couplets reflecting upon it, giving a kind of attempt to sort of put this in place. And I think in many ways the, those scenes are beautiful and they, they offer a perspective upon the action and they point toward a kind of persisting hu humanity and care in the world in the midst of chaos. But Shakespeare probably cuts these things for precisely that reason. He doesn't want us to sort of settle upon a kind of morally comfortable position. And he doesn't give you any of those kinds of comforts. He doesn't give you any respite in the revised version. Shakespeare's revisions allow King Lear to evoke multiple genres at once, both comedy and tragedy. Similarly, there are multiple literary lenses through which we could interpret the play's main characters. Goneril, Regan and Cordelia can be viewed as the villains and the heroine of a mythological tale, or as flawed but sympathetic players in a harshly realistic political drama. It partly depends on the frame in which we understand it. You can think in terms of mythic archetypes, the, 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 the good child, the bad child. You've got the bad daughters and the good daughter. You've got the bad son and the good son, and that sort of stuff. But it's, as always with Shakespeare, it's not quite so simple. And so, so Cordelia is truth. She is. But we also get these hints, which, which are very alive in performance, of somebody who is stubborn, who is obtuse, who is willfully not doing what she's required to do in that situation, somebody who is proud, who is contemptuous of her sisters, who is spoiled. I'm not offering these sort of things as a, as a judgment. I'm offering these sort of things as these are absolutely possible inferences from what she's given to say, and they are absolutely easily personified, manifested in performance. So Shakespeare's sustaining a character who is at one and the same time an absolute figure of truth and trust and a figure who's engaged in this kind of rivalrous family drama where she's in her own way flawed and stubborn and difficult and so forth so it's different frameworks cordelia can be read as an angelic figure committed to the virtue of truth making goneril and regan look like the wicked stepsisters of a fairy tale but if you choose to look at the play through a realistic psychological framework as many modern productions do these roles become less clear-cut. These days on stage, what you'll mostly find with the daughters is that they're absolutely psychologised. They're turned into typical modern women. And so Goneril and Regan come off really well because they're, they're funny, they're harsh, they're impatient, they're kind of a little bit feminist. They've got independent will, they know how to play the game. Alongside their harshness and independence, Goneril and Regan can also manifest feelings of justifiable hurt and resentment. It may be that Lear has always neglected them in his clear favouritism towards Cordelia. 
As Goneril says, he always loved our sister most. King Lear is a, a play about family. It's, a, it's about what it's like to live in a family, about the blindness and ignorance and passions and unspoken feelings that exist within families. What sets off the characters' passions, particularly Leah's, is precisely Cordelia's refusal to speak about her feelings. Her reply, when Leah commands her to declare her love, is nothing. The word nothing resonates throughout the play. It sparks Leah's break with Cordelia. The fool, whose jokes and songs conceal biting philosophical wisdom, tells Leah how he has ruined himself by saying, Thou hast paired thy wit on both sides and left nothing in the middle. And when Edgar transforms himself into poor Tom, he says, Edgar, I nothing am. This refrain of nothing raises deep existential questions about how little human life can be reduced to. The play is interested in what the word means. What does nothing mean? Does, does nothing mean zero? Does nothing mean speechlessness? Does nothing mean landlessness? Leah has given his land away. And so nothing means to, be, to lack possessions. He's kind of given his crown away and therefore he's got this kind of empty head. So nothing means kind of brainlessness. So Leah loses his land, he loses his mind, he's even naked. But you, you meet the figure of poor Tom, who's a figure without anything, who's, who's homeless, who's mad Tom, you know, he's mindless and, and all this sort of stuff. It's also asking whether there is such a thing as nothingness. The idea, for example, of the worst. Is there such a thing as the worst? Is there such a thing as something which is unsustainable or unlivable? And the answer is probably no. And that this, that one of the things that, that's most striking about King Lear is as much as it's, it's a play that leads kind of inexorably to loss, it also continually discovers something where there seems to be nothing, something in the condition of nothing. Even if it's when Gloucester loses his eyes, even there you get the care that, that attends his blindness, the care indeed of Edgar or poor Tom, who, who then leads him on. Part of the fearlessness of the play is that it's prepared to, to keep looking at what appears to be nothing and, and, and finding something, something there. When he first sees his blinded father, Edgar steals himself by saying, The worst is not, so long as we can say, this is the worst. The play asks what still remains when it seems that all is lost even as it also imagines the world coming to an end. This annihilating vision comes to a climax in the scene of Leah in the storm, when he imagines the destruction of all life, and also comes face to face with life in its barest form. He says, blow winds, crack your cheeks, strike flat the thick rotundity of the world. He says, all germen spill at once that makes him grateful man. Everything he's saying there are images of pregnancy, the, 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 the thick rotundity of the world, the world's imagined as a, as a pregnant woman. The germens that he wants to spill, germens mean seeds. So he, so he wants all the seeds of life to be spilt. So in the one sense, that means 
He wants life to be over, to be done with. He wants an absolute apocalypse. We, we, we finish with a world of, of deception, of deceit, of fake language, of flattery, of, of houses. It's all gone. But the end days are also the beginning days, you know. And so the seeds that spill, on the one hand, it means, again, the end of the world. On the other hand, it means a kind of um, undetermined origin of things. What's going to happen when these seeds, as it were, sprout or hatch? He's entering the, the most basic conditions of being, which are simultaneously post-human and pre-human, I think, and, and of course, human. This apocalyptic sense of beginning and end, the reduction of man and the origins of creaturely life, is embodied in the figure of poor Tom. Kent and the Fool and Gloucester and all that, they're all saying, go to the hovel, come to the hovel, come to the hovel. The hovel for Kent, say, represents a little bit of safety, a little bit of a kind of sanity. It's going to protect Lear against the elements, and it's going to protect his his idea of community and of civilization almost. But the hovel is then, as it were, altered by the fact that out of it erupts this figure of poor Tom, fathom and a half, fathom and a half, poor Tom. And that's the only thing that Leah recognizes is that, is that figure. Here's the thing itself, right? And what do you get? You get this figure who's kind of almost literally exploding with thousands and thousands of lives. It's There's inextricable connections between him and pond life, bet- between the beasts, the, between the hogs and the wolves and the dogs. And, you know, the, the, he's, he's, he's one with all these creatures. You get this idea of multiple lives lived in one, this tremendous turbulence, this, this sleepless sense of guilt and remorse and, and inescapable suffering all compacted into this this manic individual who's who's at one and the same time an image of Lear, Lear's own sense of, uh, of, of, of grief, remorse, guilt, chaos. But also he's an image of the community, of the people that he's always forgotten and this, this entire nation. But it's a nation without any order. All of the hierarchies have disappeared and so forth. In poor Tom's uncovered body... Leah gets a glimpse of the poor, naked wretches of whom he says he has taken too little care. He also gets a glimpse of what lies under all the titles and adornments of nobility, the naked essence of humanity. Thou art the thing itself, he tells Tom. Unaccommodated man is no more but such a poor, bare, forked animal as thou art. When people talk about King Lear as a, as a universal play, as a cosmic play, it's the combination of having this enormous storm, this kind of world historical storm, and then getting that storm, as it were, distilled, concentrated into this, this figure who, who animates it and kind of takes it, embodies it and realises it. It would be a completely different play if you just had the king by himself feeling cold and miserable. Poor Tom realises the, the, the reality of this in a way. He's the only person who Leah can talk to. He's the only person who he can converse with. And that's because they have this kind of, like at the centre of the whirlpool, there's recognition. And so the question is, what exactly is it that you are recognising? 
One thing Leah might recognise is his connection with this poor, bare animal, and by extension, with all life. Until now, Leah has insisted on his distinction. He wants to be more loved, more authoritative than anyone else. When Goneril challenges that authority, Leah says, Does any here know me? This is not Leah. Who is it that can tell me who I am? His sense of who he is is so strongly tied to his superior status that he cannot recognise himself without it. When he gave his daughters his kingdom, he insisted, Only we shall retain the name and all the addition to a king. But poor Tom has no additions. He has nothing at all, not even a piece of cloth to cover his body. And when Leah meets him in the storm, something moves him to want to be more like poor Tom. Off, off, you lendings, he cries, and strips off his clothes, trying to become as bare as Tom and the beasts he lives among. With the poor Tom figure, where he really is at one with the animals, and even below the animals, with vegetable life and, or cellular life, there's some sense in which the interconnectedness of things, in all sorts of ways, both terrifying but also redeeming, because there is that sense in which you could, in King Lear, you might eradicate the... And the play almost does eradicate the human. But even if you did eradicate the human, that wouldn't be the end of life. Things would remain. I think it's one of the reasons why King Lear became such a powerful and, and sort of pertinent play in the 1950s and 1960s, which were the age of the Cold War and the fear of nuclear apocalypse and so forth, where you had this sense that the play was in touch with, a, with this kind of post-apocalyptic world where, you, where you, you had the big bomb and what can rise from that, that wreckage. What arises from the wreckage may be a clearer recognition of what was actually there before. The storm is when Leah realises his flatterers at court never told him the truth about what he was. Ordinary, vulnerable. When the rain came to wet me once and the wind to make me chatter, there I found them. There I smelt them out, he later says. They told me I was everything. Tis a lie, I am not a due proof. Similarly, for Gloucester... The moment of his blinding is the moment he gains insight into his own past misjudgments. I stumbled when I saw, he says. King Lear asks what remains when everything seems to be stripped away, whether an individual's sense of identity or entire forms of life from the planet. This incredible capaciousness, the ability to take in both the largest and the smallest units of life, is one of Shakespeare's signature traits and part of what makes his plays so philosophically rich. Shakespeare, he's always seeing the large and the small and the small and the large. He never loses sight of the particular, of the, of the specific local feelingness in things. At the same time as he recognises that every single lived thing is an example of, of many other lived things, stands for many other lived things. Every emotion in Shakespeare is at one at one and the same time absolutely unique and particular at that specific moment, but also exemplary. It can it, 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 Anyone can recognise themselves in that. It's not one, one then the other or one or the other. It's one inside the other all the time. 
These two forces, the specific and the cosmic, come together most memorably in Cordelia's death. Leah carries her body in and cries, Lend me a looking glass, if that her breath will mist or stain the stone, why, then she lives. And Kent responds, Is this the promised end? On the one hand, our attention is focused on the most minute of physical shifts, the trace of a woman's breath on a mirror. On the other hand, we are asked to imagine the largest possible alteration of the earth, the promised end, the apocalypse. And Leah draws both great and small together in his cry as he carries Cordelia. Howl, 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 oh, you are men of stones. Had I your tongues and eyes, I'd use them so that heaven's vault should crack. She's gone forever. This feeling of, of passion, of, of fearlessness, of wildness, of some, something of just ripping the lid off and revealing life as it actually is, free from decorum, free from rules, free from obedience, allowing humans to speak as humans as though for the very first time. And I do think that's what Shakespeare, Shakespeare does. The play King Lear asks what remains when destruction seems at its worst. It also removes many sources of comfort. In the next episode, when we look closely at Lear's speech over Cordelia's body, we'll see how the play simultaneously offers and denies consolation at this moment. But whatever the play strips away from its characters, it also offers its audience something enduring. It offers language and story that are full of endless possible meanings. You've got this sense of plenty and you can never, you can never quite exhaust that plenty. And in any, in any reading or any spectating or any act of hearing Shakespeare, there's always more. You cannot take it all in. And so, but, and so partly that says, go again, read again, think again, go back. But also it's, it's some, a really simple emotional thing that his, his worlds are pregnant. They're kind of full of implications. It, it, it's everywhere in Shakespeare, this, 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 this apprehension of other lives, which gives, gives his work its humanness, unrivaled humanness. <laughs>